Wait, did did you want me to do the intro? You can do if you want. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this, this is the game again where we don't back front. All right, well, hello everyone, and welcome to the Ocean Bunker podcast. We, of course, have. John, Kyle, and our guest this week is left, so I think we're just going to jump into, I guess, Ukraine, uh, one-year anniversary of Afghanistan, um, it, or the fall of the Afghan government slash rise of the Taliban government is um, is is this week, um, and uh, we also, of course, want to touch on some other Middle East stuff um, while we have Aleph in the room. So I think we're just going to launch into Ukraine here. Um, I I know John, you wanted to talk about some stuff. Uh, do you want to, we, we, well, well, we probably have, we probably should have uh, get out exactly where we were going to start. And did we want to start with uh, the recent? Well, I wasn't here last time, was I? Did you talk much about uh, the recent recent round between Islamic Jihad and Israel, or was that in between our episodes? Uh. You know, I edit the episode, and I don't even remember what we I talked about. So, been in between, to be fair, because I think we rec- we recorded it, and then release was so much later that we might not have actually included it. Um, we we could yeah, we could start with that, I suppose. You know, as we got uh, as it, you know, we have a left here. Yeah, I mean, I guess at the end of the day when you look at the situation it's sort of it not diffused itself but um uh, uh resolved without further escalation yeah i was quite surprised by that you know normally there's a few attempts at a ceasefire right before one actually sticks but it seems like you know it was one and done this time which is you know good for everyone hmm. oh certainly well i i mean they're they're this was the largest um, sort of sustained rocket barrage on Israel since um, the events of, uh, I think, May of last year. Um, and and these two sort of May of last year and this one sort of are the largest in a while. Um, and the previous yeah. November, I think 2019. No, oh, uh, yeah, when, that one as well. I keep forgetting when, about that one. Jihad... Uh... Jihad's guy, uh, Baha Abu Atal was killed as well. Previous, yeah, yeah, it was the pre. Uh, it was November two thousand nineteen. Same thing, almost same thing happened. But I think the, um, there was a, a much difference this time because the Iron Dome interceptions got pretty much better. Like the uh, interception rate, as they announced, was about ninety five, ninety six percent success rate. So. Uh, Basically, this round was very much impressive. Uh, I'm talking about yeah. the Iron Dome, you know, the casualties or something like that. I mean, we also saw a, a bit less of the more heavyweight rockets that were seen um, in May of last year. Yeah, they were uh, using the Qassam, uh, I think it was 180, something like that. Yeah, the, the basically um, the repurposed grads. In, in, you know, ineffective terms. Um, yeah, but um, this time, actually, 
I don't think what deterred them from targeting uh, Tel Aviv. Uh, it was actually they didn't go that uh, that far uh, the way last time they did. Maybe because of the rank of Abu Atta. I'm not comparing the last May. I'm talking about the November. Because that time they, they targeted Tel Aviv. They targeted areas in the central. Uh, but this time they they were basically limited to cent uh, to southern parts. So, uh, but yeah. I don't know. Maybe they I did. I'm glad triggered uh, once or twice in central too, but... Uh, there was no impact. There was no uh, nothing serious in the central part. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like Hamas um, not getting involved definitely contributed to that. Um, just because they seem to have sort of control over uh, some of the longer range or or more capable uh, rocket systems than uh, PI than PIJ. Um, and and you know, I mean, Hamas took. A fair amount of damage um, last year, uh, and and that uh, did seem to really affect their capabilities to actually, you know, project out and do what they did last May, um, and and you know the damage done to the PIJ command structure this time around was was fairly severe, um, which is, you know, we'll we'll see what that does in the future. Obviously, um, it, it will. Yeah. <laughs> Um, It'll restrict their abilities. Yeah, but uh, actually, uh, the Peach, the Jihad movement also has long-range rockets, as far as I know, like a better three. Uh, the Borach series, uh, some of which have uh, longer range, over about 50, 60, 70. They also have, have Fajr 5 and Fajr 3 that they're also in use in several areas of the Middle East, including the Yemen, including Iraq. Uh, uh, so I don't think the problem was the arsenal of the uh, Jihad Islamic movement. But the thing that uh, Hamas uh, didn't, uh, you know, intervene in this thing is very much interesting. There were talks on Israeli TV channels. Uh, some say it might be. Uh, it just tried to uh, move itself uh, to the corners and just keeps its keep it uh, its infrastructure infrastructures. I'm sorry, I just woke up from the sleep. Uh, keep its infrastructure and the Qatari money uh, intact. Uh, on the other hand, some say that uh, this was also planned by Hamas in order to just uh, you know undermine the uh, jihad islamic movement's power while it's not getting involved at anything uh, jihad islamic is uh, using and also decreasing the number of its rockets and arsenal getting its personnel and high rankings killed while hamas is just watching and maybe laughing yeah well granted the damage that hamas as i said took a year ago i mean they they went through this first um, I mean, I, I do you think at this point that um, sort of the area, or at least in the strip, is sort of running out of those high-ranking, long-term commanders? Uh, for which one, Hamas or Arikel, uh, for the Peach? Which one? Both. Like, yeah, everyone. <laughs> All yeah. of them. 
Yeah, I don't think that would be uh, uh, the the. I'm talking about the previous, uh, the the recent, actually the latest one. Uh, I don't think it was that much a uh, of a damage to uh, Islamic Jihad because, well, they have lots of operatives. Of course, it's very, very, very fewer than Hamas, but still. Uh, and I think uh, this round was for suppressing uh, Islamic Jihad because they are more in control of Iran directly in comparison to Hamas, which is getting orders and getting uh, maybe not uh, direct orders, maybe, maybe getting the financial uh, support through uh, Qatar, Iran, and also Turkey, uh, quote-unquote, because many say that. But uh, I think PG is very, very much more of a uh, pet project of the Islamic Republic of Iran. So maybe suppressing the uh, wildest and uh, 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 the most uncontrollable uh, proxy in Gaza would be a uh, precaution thing for Israel for further uh, operations in the West Bank and maybe in, in uh, southern Lebanon or uh, southern Syria, including Konaitra. And after that, maybe they, they want to go for something longer than that. As they keep repeating that uh, by themselves, that we are ready to engage with Iran uh, if they are going to get close to obtaining a nuclear weapon. So I think uh, suppressing the wildest one and the most uncontrollable one is a good option for, for Israel. Yeah. And I, I think probably we should connect it back because we would be remiss if we didn't. But um, I know the IDF announced today um, that their strike was responsible um, for the death of five children. Um, and the the IDF Twitter account um, had actually tweeted about that and was. Um, <sighs> there There is definitely a question to be had about the Israeli um social media presence um and and sort of uh, their level of responsibility or, or or level of um i i i don't really know the best term for this but sort of a a state level um uh, uh care or 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 that that level of um of yeah responsibility basically to not put out or, or inflame a situation and you know after they come out with this announcement that you know they they were the ones responsible for the deaths it it kind of makes them look bad and then the t- tweet the tweet is still up I'll, I'll link it um but you know that that seems to cause some increased tensions uh yeah and it does but uh the thing is uh most of the times during these escalations uh, there are civilian casualties. Uh, many of times there are relatives of the uh, uh, maybe operatives or fighters uh, or jihadi people who are get, who are being targeted by Israel. So, of course, there are uh, civilian casualties. Uh, no one is happy about it. Uh, well, during the last one, as there were footage of uh, uh, Islamic jihad's misfire, which landed inside Gaza and killed some say up to 14, some say eight. Uh, there, there are different numbers because the uh, Ministry of Health in Gaza are, uh, is under control of Hamas. Mm. 
So that, yeah, and of course, even though that they are basically rivals uh, inside the Gazan soil, but still they don't want to damage the reputation of the what they call Mugavima or the resistance. So uh, we we have no idea how many were were killed by the misfire, but there were screenshots from I think the guy's name was Ahmad Najjar, uh, a reporter or a so-called journalist from Gaza, who said there are casualties uh, because of the misfire of a, a resistance faction, which is basically... Well, there, there was a misfire the previous day um, that I believe had killed seven civilians, including four children. Um, I'm not that, sure. that, I, that I know was a misfire. Yeah. On, on, on Ooh, the 8th of August, the um, Associated Press... Um, found I think Israel needs a better PR when it comes to uh, the, the the conflicts. Uh, most of the times, uh, Israel lacks that thing, and you know the gag orders, the lots of things that they they restrict. Uh, some news, some some confirmation. It, it actually backfires at Israel, and um, usually it gets worse. Because they the WhatsApp groups are in Israel are always active and obviously there are uh, foreigners including Gazans including Palestinians uh, who are uh, who are reading those messages and usually use those messages against it. So uh, basically, IDF can't uh, you know can't prevent the news from uh, being published, but by 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 making the gag order, it just get, gets worse and worse. So I believe that mm, you're right. I think that Israel needs a better PR, better, even better uh, footage collection, uh, having better cameras. Uh, well, I, I think there's that. Uh, Go on. I think there's Sorry. that level of responsibility, as I said before. I mean, the international press exists, and you know, Israel can't exactly put a gag order on them. So yeah. it, it, it it all comes down to that, basically. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm what you were saying, John. Sorry, I, I just go back to what you were saying um, earlier. Yeah, so a day before, um, there was a rocket misfire which killed four children in the same area, and then that was on August sixth, hmm. and on the seventh there was the um, the Israeli strike in the same region which killed another four children, which yeah. um, is, is is awful. But you can see where the confusion comes from. Um, and, and, and on the I think the, the issue is is um, in, you know with you know with the, the conflict um, between Israel and you know like factions in Gaza is especially on social media there's a lot of um, misinformation immediately after things like this. Um, you, you know, I saw um, you know the, when I got first made aware that you know that, that the IDF have you know, investigated and taken responsibility for the strike earlier was. You know, people were screenshotting tweets from quite prominent, um, like Israeli um, celebrities and social media accounts, basically saying, you know, oh, if you if you say it was an, you know Israel's fault, then you know it's anti-Semitic, it's it's this, it's that, the next thing, you know, it was absolutely a rocket thing. Um, and you know, and then you know, a couple of weeks later, the IDF come out and do take responsibility, which. You know, as you guys know, I'm I'm never one to shy away from criticizing Israel when they do, you know, they do fuck up and they do, you know, deserve it. But you know, one thing I will say is, you know, Israel, you know, it can be almost not commended as such, but at least when they do make these mistakes and these, you know, horrific mistakes, 
by and large, they they do own up to it and they do take responsibility. Unlike, for argument's sake, you know, Russia, unlike other countries like Syria and, and other countries um, which commit crimes and then deny, deny, deny. You know, it is at least refreshing to see that they do take responsibility. Not, but not that it you know changes what happened or you know um, fixes it, but. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely positive, and I think it's um, something that hopefully we see more of in future. If well, hopefully we don't see the mistakes made in the first place. Um, but when yeah, they do, I, it's I always mean, good to see problem, you know responsibility being taken. I think the problem here was that they initially put out a tweet. the The IDF put out a tweet basically claiming that you know it wasn't their fault. Um, hmm. Which, yeah. again, is why I sort of question the social media presence sometimes as, you know, irresponsible. Yes. Yeah, I think jumping uh, into a conclusion, uh, by the IDF page on Instagram and Twitter, uh, that fast wasn't really wise enough. And actually, as I said, it backfires towards Israel. So, yeah, I, I agree with the... Uh, taking the responsibility where, uh, when there are civilian casualties, which I believe it's still and it will be inevitable because you know the the, the people are living in a very uh, uh, very tight area. Lots of these operatives are living in their houses, so when they target the house, even though that the building is intact, the unit that they're targeting, the apartment that they're targeting. Well, there are people living. The, the guy, the guy, is a terrorist, according to Israel. Uh, and yeah, the, the guy is a terrorist, but he's living with his family. So there are civilian casualties. And if even if there is, they can say that okay, three people were killed. Amongst them, that person, that operative, uh, uh, were uh, were there too. So Israel uh, usually doesn't say that. And well. Uh, what we saw is hap- uh, is happening and will happen for sure, as long as Israel doesn't clarify what what it was targeting and clarifies the casualties. Mm. <laughs> and it, it's worth saying that um, obviously there was somewhere in the region of eleven hundred rockets fired from Gaza over the course of the what was it four or five days that this was going on for, um, and considering that. Even the UN special coordinator uh, for the Middle East turned around and said something like 20% of those didn't even make it across the border into Israel and so fell into Gaza and caused casualties there. Mm-hmm. The, the casualty numbers, in all honesty, are fairly low, like surprisingly low. I mean, we are talking, I think it was, someone was quoted as saying something in a region of about 50 people total killed in Gaza. Um of which 36 were civilians, um, and probably half of those civilians were killed by misfired rockets. Um, obviously, yeah. we won't know for certain. I was just reading that um, there was a chap from the Associated Press um, who went to two of the explosion sites in uh, Jabalia, um, one of which the IDF subsequently, as you mentioned, claimed responsibility for um, killing five children there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the whole situation. It, 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 is it fair to say it started out with one airstrike on 
one particularly high level uh, PIJ leader and then just escalated from there. I think it was several airstrikes, wasn't it? I mean, I may imagine, or or I might have missed an airstrike a couple of days earlier. But on the day when everything kind of um very suddenly escalated, I believe didn't was there an airstrike prior to Israel actually like announcing an official operation? Or there, there, there was a I think the the first airstrike was sort of afternoon of the fifth of August, um, and it was supposed to be a, a one strike on a. Uh, PIJ leader. Um, I'm just trying to find the name now. Um, I know there was a series of airstrikes that lasted like a minute and a half or two minutes or something like that that got given like an official name, right? Or or am I making that up? Am I on the wrong? Yeah, there was of the commanders. I think one was uh, Khalid Mansour. The other one was Ahmad Taisiri or something like that. I, I don't remember the first one, but the first one was the guy. Uh, was killed uh, a very sudden, sudden attack and actually on the same morning before before the strike uh, Gantz, um, Defense Minister Gantz has a, had a uh, uh, like uh, private meeting and he was, uh, he was assessing some stuff as it was tweeted by the uh, guys from Times of Israel including Emmanuel uh, so apparently it was a very sudden decision and very uh, like a blitz. They just did it. Mm. And, and and it's worth saying as well that prior to the, the strikes beginning um, on the 3rd of August, the head of the sort of Politburo in, uh, of the PIJ in Gaza um, is quoted as having said, we have every right to bomb Israel with our most advanced weapons and make the occupier occupier pay a heavy price. We will not settle for a yeah, but we will bomb the centre of the so-called state of Israel. End quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, it was the leader of the uh, Islamic Jihad, Ziad Nahale, but uh, well, it didn't happen. So, uh, yeah. and also his words about having no truce with Israel lasted for two days and after that well I think Egyptians did what they they're uh, best at yeah yeah so and and I think it's important to remember to contextualize the situation that the PIJ pretty much exclusively targeted you know civilian targets unintentionally inside of Gaza and intentionally in Israel um Mm -hmm. I, I I think it's very important to sort of can properly contextualize that where Israel targeted what they, at least what they believed were proper military targets. Whereas the PIJ just, you know, attacked civilian targets. Yeah. No, I think that's, yeah, that's an excellent point because again, like I said, you know, Israel's actions in Gaza, again, you know, have to be scrutinized and, you know, there are absolutely, um, questionable decisions and and things you know bordering on um you know war crimes that have happened in gaza but for the most part like i said i think the, the intention is to target military facilities they're not they, they're not like some people claim just go into gaza and carpet bomb in the place just to deliberately target civilians um and you know, like I said, unlike uh you know like the factions inside gaza which you know when another run of fighting kicks off they, they just lob 
you know, hundreds and, and thousands of unguided rockets towards civilian targets with the hope of killing civilians. Um, but what, what I found quite interesting was this round of fighting was um, was kind of uh, started or escalated uh, due to the Israel having intelligence um, that uh, the Jihad were planning to target. Um, I don't know if you might know this. I, I believe it was like they were planning like uh, an anti-tank attack, a missile attack, right on the border. They were planning to attack like Israeli military vehicles. Is that what the intelligence was about? Uh, I am not sure. I wasn't following that case, but uh, as far <laughs> as I remember, the the uh, Jabari guy, the first guy who was killed, uh, he was the commander of the southern uh, uh, Gaza from the Islamic Jihad, and the other guy, the Khalid Mansur was the commander of northern uh, like northern gaza so uh, basically i think israel damaged the, the power structure in islamic jihad because they have to change uh, the commanders the the uh deputies lots lots of structure will be changed and i think that buys israel some time to uh, keep uh, uh islamic jihad calm maybe for for further operations uh outside of Gaza or outside of maybe outside of the yeah. Mediterranean region. And and the IDF did provide a, a, a admittedly incomplete list, but a list nonetheless of the, some of the targets that they struck. Um, mm-hmm. I've got the list here. Um, included 45 launch sites, 17 observation posts, six munition production facilities, three naval targets, one attack tunnel, eight weapons caches, and eight military camps. So, yeah, the, clearly, uh, as you say, Aleph, they, they they were going for sort of leadership and cre- uh, key infrastructure for the for the PIJ things that would ultimately try and prevent further rocket attacks and also reduce their long term ability to operate. Yeah, I think if they cripple uh, Islamic Jihad enough, uh, uh, and maybe the only unique power in Gaza, I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the small factions like uh, I don't know Qatar, Abu Ali, Mustafa, and stuff like that. If Peach fades away from Gaza, uh, power-wise and rocket missile-wise, uh, well, Gaza, uh, Hamas will be the only power, and I think. Uh, Hamas is not uh, is not that military like it was before. It wants to be involved in uh, politics. It wants to uh, get involved in the elections. Uh, despite that, it usually loses. And uh, not not losing the elections. I'm talking about uh, the elections getting postponed or cancelled by the PA, by the Palestinian Authority, uh, by the Mahmoud Abbas's side. So I think if Islamic Jihad goes away, uh, uh, maybe even maybe for a short time. Uh, Hamas could uh, like focus uh, on more political matter, uh, matters rather than getting involved in uh, targeting Israel or uh, uh, rocket attacks or small conflicts. Basically, it, uh, for for Hamas that would be even better because it doesn't burn the Qatari monies. So they will focus on more political things and gaining more uh, more power and wealth uh, through the peace. 
an unannounced peace, though. I mean, there, of course, there there is no official peace between Hamas and Israeli side. So that that is my humble opinion. Uh, do you have anything further on Israel Gaza, or should we move on? I mean, I think it'd be good to you know yeah, stick in the Middle East so. with. Um... If you're talking uh, about outside of Gaza, yeah, there were well, there were some operations against the uh, the Shahada Al Aqsa uh, uh, military wing of the Fatah. Uh, organization which is in control of the West Bank, the Palestinian uh, side of the West Bank, and well, they killed an operative. They killed two more. There are still there are still arrests on, uh, ongoing in Oblos. Uh, so I think Israel wants to calm down Gaza and the West Bank simultaneously. But still, there are shooting attacks, as there was one two nights ago. Uh, which was uh, unfortunately against civilians on a bus, but still, I think Israel is just trying to uh, to calm the situation inside its territories and near itself uh, down in order to do something else somewhere else. I'm not going to say where you know, where is that, or uh, I have some a few guesses, but I'm not sure. No one's sure about that. But yeah, for Israeli talks and stuff and the subject, I think we're done here and we're good. But <laughs> we can talk about Iraq and Iran. Yeah, I, I think that probably is a good moment to move on to discussing, as you say, Iraq and Iran. Um, I think we, myself and uh, Coop Shaw, briefly touched on uh, Iraq last time, um, but obviously neither of us being. Uh, sort of anywhere near experts on, on that particular nation um, we probably didn't have an awful lot of use to say um, so perhaps you could just give us an update Aleph about what, what's what been going on in, in Iraq and in Iran um, over the last couple of weeks sure thing. Uh, first thing is that the uh, Muqtada Sadr the, the uh, leader of the Sad group and leader of the Saraya uh, Sari Salam, military wing of the Sad movement, uh, and his mandates uh, were were basically about to uh, evacuate from the Majlis Nawab, aka the Parliament of Iraq. But he wasn't happy because uh, the KDP, the Kurdistani part, uh, uh, led by uh, Barzani, uh, they are not uh, they are not cooperating. So. Uh, if even if they leave the the parliament, the Majlis Nawab won't be dissolved. And well, this is the thing that uh, Satter is trying to push forward. So he's inviting everyone to get involved in a uh, what he calls a widespread uh, round of protests till they achieve what they want. Uh, he gave an ultimatum uh, for dissolving the. Majlis Nawab, the parliament, but he backed down because Kitab uh, Hezbollah, the, the Irani backed side, uh, and Asad Ahl al Haq, and uh, basically most of the Hatshabi, the PMU related uh, groups and militias uh, decided to face it with their own presence. So, uh, like whenever Sadr wants to uh, hold a uh, round of demonstrations, 
they are also present. They will be also present. So he postponed his uh, his round of protests on the next Saturday. I think twenty. Uh, I think on the twentieth of uh, August. Yeah, it was twenty. So possibly there won't be any protests on uh, the twenty of August. But I think his uh, ultimatum is still there and he wants to dissolve the uh, parliament and go for another round of elections. On the other hand, uh, regarding the Iran, what is happening uh, is that uh, last night Iran announced that we will, uh, uh, we will uh, announce our decision about the, what, they, uh, what people call JCPOA2 or the next nuclear deal between Iran and Western countries. But according to what the Iran International said, apparently uh, the uh, Western sides, include, uh, including the United States, are not going to accept uh, the Iran conditions, the preconditions. So uh, what they say is that Iran is uh, asking for financial safeguards for the incoming JCPOA, maybe V2. So, so far it's still a dead, a dead end, but no one knows as of, as of now, right now. But uh, apparently there are some uh, further talks and there will be further talks. In the meantime, Iran is pressurizing the West by supplying uh, drones and UAVs to uh, Russian side. As United States announced, there were uh, military officials of Russia who were in training program programs for the UAVs. And well, apparently, uh, Iran is about to send a, a maybe first, second batch of UAVs. Some say, some uh, analysts say that it, there, there will be Shahed 136, which is uh, very dangerous, would be very dangerous. They showed that in like a year ago. And well, that might be a game changer for the Russian side if they have proper, uh, you know, training programs for, for the Russians. I think that changed the game for the front lines of Ukraine, not maybe not that much uh, further. But if they get uh, UAVs like the ones that they are in control of Yemeni Houthis, including the, the, the one that they call, uh, what was that, uh, the 2K thing. Uh, I don't, I, I, I can't oh, recall it. Yes. But, um, with the loiter ammunition one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Qasad 2K one, uh, that one which was used against Saudi Arabia dozens of times. Uh, I think that changes the game, and I think this is not a deal for Iran. Uh, some say they, they want to get Sukhoi uh, in exchange for the drones, uh, but I think I, this I is mean, just a... For lack, lack of a better term, I mean, it's, it's, it's highly unlikely that they're able to actually receive anything significant from Russia just because the Russian industrial base has been significantly impacted by sanctions. Um, Speaking about sanctions, though, I I think at, at this point you have sort of have to look at J the second JCPOA and, and the sanctions, you know, that Iran would potentially, you know, that would be lifted. 
Um, and then you look at who Iran is aligning itself with right now. I mean, it, it's heavily assisting Russia for what seems to be very little physical benefit, mostly just for political gains. Um, and, and, you know, openly flaunting existing sanctions on Russia. Um, you, you, you sort of have to go back and you have to look at the JCPOA deal and, and, and just, you know... Will Iran really negotiate in good faith? Will Will Iran keep their promises? Um, and, and that's something that the negotiators really have to look at. I think they, they already know that Iran was still working in Fordo even on 2015 when the deal was signed. I'm talking about the first one. Uh, and, well, Iran didn't uh, keep its promises and uh, wasn't that much obligated to the terms of the JCPOA one because well it was Fordo, it was uh, the the traces of uranium that was found in Turkuzabad uh, south of Tehran I guess I think there's no uh, this doesn't bring any guarantee to the western countries especially and and not especially actually uh, and Israel because the most uh, uh, concerned a nation in the world who who's very very concerned about the iranian nuclear and missile capa capabilities is basically israel so mm. uh and even though that the um, uh, former uh, prime minister netanyahu was uh, was trying his best and israel was trying his best to prevent something like jcpoa one well it happened uh, i assume that there will be a jcpoa two unless uh united states and israel which is not a part of the talks uh do something serious about the thing or they make something uh very strict and very firm inside the draft and inside the contract to prevent iran from going further than uh wherever it is right now because we know the enrichment level uh has grown uh significantly their missile capabilities is growing as well. They have drones, they have UAVs, they are, they have lots of malignant activities across the Middle East, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, Gaza. So I, I don't think uh, a JCPOA V2 would stop Iran from doing such stuff. Yeah, and, and the other thing is, I mean, I, I truly think Iran will start to use the Ukraine conflict and especially Russia as a place to sort of serve as a testing ground for their equipment in, in, in a near peer war um, where, where they're able to sort of face off against an opponent opponent that, you know, isn't fighting in an asymmetric way, whether that be, you know, in Yemen where mostly Iranian equipment is used to, you know, uh, 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 penetrate Saudi air defenses or, or it, it isn't really a similar situation as to Ukraine. Um, but, you know, there, there's a potential we'll continue to see Iran, you know, get this increased both, you know, technological relationship with Russia and this sort of military relation. Um, and, and I do think there there are questions about how close that will be um, and, you know, whether or not, say, Iran sends advisors with the drones that they're sending, because, you know, when doing drone operations, it's not exactly like they have to put people on the front lines. And so there's a lot of, you know a lot of gray area that they can potentially take advantage of. True, because, uh, well, I think Iran got its first uh, portion of money by getting the latest satellite that was launched by Russia. It was called Khayyam. 
which was designed and manufactured by uh, Russian companies. So I think there will be an exchange for that because, uh, well, we know the financial situation between Iran and uh, and Russia and the current financial situation in Iran, which is uh, doesn't seem uh, doesn't seem good at all. But I guess this 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 uh, satellite that was launched was something that Russia paid Iran in order to get something in exchange, possibly drones as many sources are claiming so i guess it is going on and it will go on the the eppus the uh ocean uh 76t uh had a trip to um, moscow a few days ago i guess three days ago it still has and it goes to, to damascus to uh and then go to moscow or vice versa so i guess something's going on between iran and iran is moving something Maybe part, uh, maybe uh, drone parts, UAV parts, or whatever they have at the moment. And I guess, and I still believe that they are doing this to pressurize uh, the Western part for the negotiations. Because uh, you know, Iran doesn't have to uh, use the Ukraine as a testbed for its ground equipment. Because if there will be an attack on Iran, uh, it would be something by air. Because most of the countries are aware of a ground attack on Iran. Boots on the ground won't end well for them. So I guess they're just testing their UAV power uh, for their uh, proxies, not for themselves, I guess. Yeah. The proxies and, and... are closer to their uh, sworn enemy, Israel. So I guess they're just trying the equipment, as you mentioned, for uh, further... Uh, uh, you know, deployments in the Middle East, not only Iran. Yeah, and not really to put on my tinfoil hat here, but any potential technological transfer like you talked about, um, I, I think one needs to remember that Russia is still a world leader in ballistic missile and nuclear technology. Uh, so... For the moment. <laughs> you know, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. <laughs> True. I guess. Well, I think we'll see because the it's August and lots of things would happen regarding the Iran talks. Uh, no one knows how it's going to end because the current administration uh, has a very different team than the previous one. The the previous one had a very very uh, basically uh, significant uh, foreign minister, but the Mohammad Javad Zarif was. Uh, actually, he, he studied in the West, he studied in the States, he was a, a very, very serious diplomat, and he was, actually, he got lots of points that I believe, and uh, maybe many countries, many sides believe that they, they, they shouldn't have been given to Iran, including the money, including lots of things, uh, and this, uh, well, this current administration doesn't have people like Zarif, uh, which some say it's fortunate for Israel, but uh, we all know that the final decision will be made by the supreme leader of Iran, the Khamenei person, and the governments are just, well, just governments. After all, Khamenei uh, decides who is going to be elected, who is going to be, uh, well, removed from the position, I guess, 
uh, even if Khomeini decided for for the uh, 2015 JCPOA, and now wants to do another round, uh, that's it. And if it doesn't, it doesn't really uh, have to do anything with the government. But still, the negotiation team right now is much weaker than the previous administration, uh, uh, the Rouhani administration. Yeah, I mean, when when you lose your, you know, what can be considered the most moderate figures, which, you know, in Iran, I guess that's that's not saying much. Um, but but when you lose figures like that, obviously, the the new government is more willing to make these sort of long term plans um, that definitely go in a certain direction. Yeah, I think uh, we have to go back a little bit and uh, talk about the leaked uh, uh, interview, which wasn't supposed to be published between uh, some interviewer and uh, Jawad Zarif, the previous foreign minister of Iran. Uh, and interestingly, in that conversation, he mentioned that Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, was trying to stop the JCPOA unless they... they uh, basically uh, comply with what Russian side wants. So uh, I think I tweeted about it, and the whole uh, audio is available on YouTube, I think through uh, Iran International. But uh, uh, what we know and what most of the Iranians heard about that interview was that the Russia was doing, uh, was doing quite uh, bad and was behaving very, very bad against the JCPOA agreement. And it tried, it's, apparently, it tried its best to stop the JCPOA. Uh, I am searching my own tweet. Yeah. Uh, this is what I translated through the uh, audio. Uh, he said, Zarif says, uh, quote, See, when Russians realized that we are reaching an agreement and passed through all the obstacles, they started to create new ob obstacles, uh, and their goal wasn't take the enrichment from us. Their goal was to prevent signing the JCPOA, unquote. This yeah, is something I mean, it, that it's, was, was... It's important to remember that Lavrov is, is like, comically evil now, um, and and Russian, Russian foreign policy basically is just coming down to, you know, making things harder for the West in general, and, and blowing up a potential JCPOA, and, you know making relations in the Gulf region more tense is obviously a win for Russia because it distracts from what they intended to do at the time, which was invade Ukraine. True. Yeah, but uh, regarding the JCPOA, I think, uh, I'm not sure, uh, is uh, has Russia changed since then? But we know that Sergei Lavrov didn't change. And I think he won't change as long as uh, the Putin is there. So, uh, but for the previous round, for the 2015 round, uh, apparently Russia was very uh, firm against the JCPOA. And but after all, uh, the the agreement was reached and it was signed. But well, it didn't last long. I'm not sure about the current round, but I'm pretty sure Russia wants to take something like a big piece of cake away from this agreement. If uh, it wants to get involved in this um, agreement. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I 
at, at this point, I think Russia is an anti-party to the JCPOA. They they actively don't want to see it. You know, they they don't want, as I said before, they they don't want stabilization in the Gulf region because it, it 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 distracts the US and if the US has to devote resources to the Gulf region for either policing or you know if things turn hot that's obviously distracting from the situation in Ukraine. You know I had an idea that maybe Russia is even trying to get uh, maybe get away or at least lift some of its sanctions uh, by pressurizing uh, the agreements for the second JCPOA so Maybe they want something in exchange, like uh, re- uh, like lifting some sanctions from some specific Russian individuals and entities, and then just uh, sign the uh, the next deal. But uh, still, I'm not sure about the European side. Uh, I think uh, right now they are more hostile to Russia in comparison to 2015, because well, we know Ukraine, so. I guess uh, Russia would try its best to get something big, big from the whole thing. But uh, well, so far we don't know what's going on uh, during the talks. Maybe uh, we get an update uh, in a few hours uh, or up to a few days. But we'll see what's going on. And I think Iran, even if Iran uh, agrees with this deal and signs this deal, I don't think they will be very much um you know uh they, they won't comply with with the agreements i i think they won't stop fordo uh, the uh, nuclear facility in fordo i think they won't stop some specific uh sites that are still un- under the international atomic agency uh uh, observation, they restricted the access to cameras. I don't think Iran would stop this big uh, ship that started sailing, at least for now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at this point we should probably just pivot over to Ukraine um, to, to finish out the episode. Um, but I, I guess the, the last two weeks have been slightly busy in southern Ukraine. I, I think we can say that. Uh, you mean like real seven, like like Crimea? Yeah, well, Crimea, Kyrgyzstan Oblast, you know, all that, all all yeah. that southern front area. Yeah, I, I mean, I think especially um, Crimea in the last, I mean, even just like the last week, I can't remember when the um, the attack on the um, air base was. Uh, well, uh, that was, I think, let me double check, I think almost a week ago now. Is it a week? From when we're recording the podcast. Um, yeah, so I was just looking, so it was seven days ago. I can't even remember where it it was near, it was on the west coast. Right? Nova Fedorovka slash Saki Air Base. Saki, um, it's the main the Russian uh, uh, naval aviation base in the area, it was... Taken from, or sort of taken for the sort of Crimea situation before 2014 was weird, but it was basically captured from Ukraine then. Um, and we saw Russian naval aviation sort of continue to operate out of there. Um, the attack was particularly devastating uh, to the, the existing units at the airbase. I think, I, what was it, like almost half of the available combat power of the available units there were was destroyed. Was it 14 aircraft? Was that the last count? I don't know. 
I think we had seen eight confirmed, you know, burnt out, destroyed. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, like eight, like obliterated, but yeah, like damage beyond repair, probably again, another, <laughs> another, you know, good amount. Um, and it seems, still seems to be some dispute over what the attack actually was. I mean, of course, the official Ukrainian claim, which is quite frustrating, just being kind of like uncritically par- uh, parroted by, you know, the, the media, it seems, is that it was a, um, a special forces raid into the base um, and sabotage, which, you know, just, just looking at the, the satellite imagery just seems, and, and, the, and the size of the explosions seems very, very unlikely. Um, and, just, you know, just to jump forward and jump back, you know, again, with the, with the attack this morning against an ammunition depot a little bit further north, um, Ukraine made the same claim again that it was a special forces raid and sabotage. It, it just it just seems to me that they they're claiming this just to keep Russia looking over their shoulders a little bit in Crimea, looking for some kind of phantom special forces unit that's running around blowing the, the ammunition depots up. But probably doesn't exist, and the real explanation is probably a lot simpler, in that the Ukraine have access to some weapons that haven't been officially announced. Um, that have the range to hit these kind of targets that they didn't previously have. Um, but technically, it sounded like you were going to say something then in regards to that. Yeah, it, it, it is worth us noting, um, in all fairness, that the the the, the source of this uh, the, these explosions, whether it be a missile attack or or special forces, has rather split. Um, the OSINT community. I, th- I think it's fair to say there are. Oh, okay. No, no, no. sorry. It hasn't split. There is. I'm not saying that there's there's arguments necessarily, but there are certainly those who hold the opinion that it's a uh, some sort of missile strike, and there are those who argue that um, it is possibly a special forces operation, as the Ukrainians are claiming. Obviously, we, <clears throat> we may never actually know the truth because, you know. It's likely to be kept very much under wraps until, you know, probably 30, 40, 50 years down the line, unless, you know, there's a drastic change of circumstances. But we will be very, very clear that we cannot with, you know, say categorically whether or not it was special forces or whether or not oh, no, it yeah. was a missile. No, there there is there is currently a debate going on right now or, or not even a debate per se, but ever Everyone has their own ideas of whether or not it was, you know, a missile attack, you know, a, a drone attack, potentially a, an attack by special forces using loitering munitions or, or a more direct special forces attack. Um, yeah, I, I would say there's there's general conversation in the community about that. Yeah, I think for me, I think the... the biggest thing pointing towards it not being some kind of special forces raid is the fact that Ukraine are claiming that's what it was less than a week after the first attack and hours after the second attack. I mean, it, it just seems monumentally stupid to, you know, confirm that as, you know, for the, for the most part, those, those guys would, if, if it was especially, they'd probably still be in Crimea and it makes no sense whatsoever to, um, you know, give give Russia any more ammunition to kind of look for saboteurs inside, you know, behind their own lines. If that was the, you know, the genuine cause of these attacks, so I think that, that for me is why I'm leaning towards some kind of new weapon that hasn't been announced. Um, is because it's 
the opposite of what the claim is at the moment whilst you know these operations are still ongoing you know after the first attack a week ago you know they said this is just the beginning there's going to be more attacks and like more um more things to come which you know as we saw today this morning you know another you know uh, attack at the ammunition depot um, well the, the attack on the ammunition depot was just absolutely uh, i'll i'll just say beautifully executed beautifully mm. planned and executed managing to both hit a major electrical substation serving the train network and hitting an ammunition depot that just happened to be at the crossroads of um of of basically every single train line in Crimea um in, including the major artery heading into Ukraine so that that was definitely a, a, a significantly damaging event to Russian transport capabilities in the region. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and you know, as, as I said, like the, it seems like the damage to the the rail line wasn't as significant as some people kind of initially thought. And like it seems, you know, after after the attack this morning, um, passenger trains were stopped coming from Russia. Um, towards towards the north of Crimea the damage to the line but you know only a few hours later they claimed that the damage had been repaired I think the that's where the risk is for us if if Ukraine do strike and damage that line in any kind of real significant way um they you know there's just no way for them to kind of transport any kind of large quantities of ammunition um to the southern front from Russia um and, and obviously that's going to have like a huge impact on the what we've been saying for months now the the upcoming battle for Kherson, which still hasn't materialized but it seems to be with the the moves ukraine are making kind of edging closer and closer you know the the targeting of bridges around the city obviously now we've got the targeting of um well obviously what would be a critical air base um for the defense of the city in crimea um, and obviously the ammunition depots as well, which would have been again, you know, like for transfer for resupplying the the Russian forces in on on the, in the southern front. So it seems like an offensive is imminent, in quotation marks, <laughs> as I've been saying for again for for a few months now. But it it seems to me that you know the Ukraine are definitely pulled into it. Um, if not necessarily pulling the trigger just yet, um, but I think it's, I think that's where the the next kind of phase of this war is going to is going to be kind of focused. You know, the the Russian advance around Luhansk has largely stalled. They seem to be having very very minor successes here and there, like you know making you know tens of meters of ground rather than kilometers and tens of kilometers as they previously were. Um, so it, you know it, it makes sense that. You know, like the offensive on Kiev was um, abandoned. It seems like they might kind of put a hold on the on the Donbass offensive for a while, and kind of you know, as as we've seen, it sort of shifting a lot of troops to the south to um, repel what's expected to be quite a large Ukrainian offensive. But you know, at the moment that hasn't happened. But I don't know what your guys' takes are. If you have anything else to add, I, I mean, I think in, in Kyrgyzstan Oblast, at least, it's more of a steady wearing down of existing Russian defenses in the area. Mm -hmm. um, 
I I think the the aim is to cut off Kyrgyzstan or make it untenable for Russian forces to remain there, which you know they're effectively trying to turn the Antonovsky Bridge into dust. Um, and, and making pretty good progress on it. it. It appears that Russian air defense systems are having a, a mighty difficult time intercepting HIMARS um, missiles. I, I think the last attack, they potentially intercepted two or three um, out, out of the total strike. Um, yeah, they were, there was, yeah, there that, was, that was missiles launched and there were ex, you know, kind of explosions in the sky. There was potential interceptions, but... Yeah, there was still and a, that was a, hell of a lot of impacts on the bridge. Yeah, that was with multiple air defense systems trying to descend the bridge, um, and so it, it may continue to be harder and harder and harder for Russian forces to actually remain in Kyrgyzstan, um, the city of Kyrgyzstan, not not the the region itself. They they may have to retreat um, at some point south of the Dnieper um, River, which. Uh, again, would be ma- a major victory for the Ukrainians. Kyrgyzstan is, or still remains, a major objective for the Russian forces um, to hold on to and to attempt to convert over to this, you know, uh, basically trying to get the population to become Russian. Um, and then in the east, uh, I, I know that there were some reports I had reported on it. There was a story from a Russian soldier basically explaining that Ukrainian artillery had become extremely dangerous um, to Russian advances where Ukrainians were able to call fire in on Ukrainian, on Russian forces and Russian artillery within, you know, minutes at Mm -hmm. most. Um, And the Ukrainians were properly using, you know, various intelligence resources, you know, whether or not that be from the Americans or through smaller drone related means to uh, target Russian forces. So, we really haven't seen much Russian progress in the East now for weeks. Um, just generally indicating that, that the Russians are just running into that trouble. Oh, exactly. Uh, I don't think there's been a lot more in Ukraine other than the, uh, and I said the attacks in Crimea haven't been a huge, like I said, there's been, a stalemate, I guess, in in the uh, the Donbass. Um, anything else? Anyone? Anything else you want to touch on? What's happened since the last episode? Again, I obviously I wasn't here. I wasn't sure what you talked about. Um. Oh man, I I don't think there's anything I'm seeing. I I think we covered everything. Middle East. I I think we've hit on the oh, main do... Ukrainian points. Just mention the um first anniversary of Afghan withdrawal, or do we? Want to oh yeah, I mean. Yeah, I I know we had t- we've talked about Afghanistan a lot. Um, yeah. Also, I Turkey think... killed uh, twenty two Syrian soldiers a couple of hours ago. That might be worth a mention. A mention, yeah. Yeah, it, it's been mentioned now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, um, I mean, that's still around the again imminent Turkish intervention in northern Syria that they've been threatening for the last few months. Yeah, the the. The invasion that's going to happen, you know, any week for the past six months. Yeah, um, but it seems that you know things have escalated a little bit um, in the last couple of days. You know, yeah, I mean, up. We'll... they've accused the uh, the SDF of firing into Turkey, so there's been some like kind of cross border shelling, which you know, 
as we saw from Ukraine, when when those kind of accusations started getting thrown around, the actual invasion wasn't far off. Um, not to say that's you know going to happen, but um, you know you have to think that it's it's definitely uh, going to happen soon, especially with such quite a large attack against yeah that Syrian government position, well, well, joint Syrian government SDF position, which um, I initially thought the twenty two killed was just kind of rebel source um hopefulness exaggeration but uh but it is now being confirmed it seems by um you know like government sources to uh, various people on on social media so um that could be worth been an eye on um do you want to wrap up by just touching on afghanistan then yeah i suppose we can um we'll probably best bring it to a close so um Obviously, at the time of recording, we are pretty much a year on now from um, what the UK called Operation Pitting, or uh, what I think most of us dubbed the Kabul Airlift, um, which was obviously the, the, the arguably the shambles of the sort of withdrawal and, and collapse of Afghanistan um, in the face of Taliban forces. Um, it, it's fair to say that sort of we, we've continued over the last 12 months to see the news stories we were expecting to be coming out of Afghanistan um, sort of the, the removal of, of women's rights in, in large parts and and um, obviously education taking a massive hit as well um, it's fair to say that the Taliban hasn't really made perhaps as much of a fuss about its victory as, as, as we perhaps would have thought um, but I, I've been reminded in the last few days particularly of, of the um, the, the tragic deaths of uh, 13 US Marines and 170 odd Afghan civilians in the um, blast outside Kabul airport um, which again we were very close to the, the first anniversary of that attack um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on, on that topic as well um, yeah, I, mean, I mean like I said like the whole thing in general was just I, I think it would be, did, you, did you say shambles is that the word you used mm. um and i think that is just the best the best i saw um on on twitter earlier i seen some photos of um that the the, the us c17 that were people trying to you know were clinging on to the outside of um and you know when it landed it had you know like handprints on, on the dust on the outside of it which is you know just absolutely horrific mm. um and and like you said, you know, the, exactly what we all kind of expected after the Taliban takeover has largely transpired. Um, I think there was a, uh, a a protest, women protesting for rights there in the last couple of weeks that was unsurprisingly quite you know, put down quite violently. Um, one thing I have noticed seems to have slowed down though or maybe it's just not been reported as much is it seems that like the kind of isis attacks against taliban um have you know kind of so that, you know especially in the weeks and and you know first kind of few months after the u.s withdrawal um there was a, a, quite a large number of attacks um against kind of high-ranking taliban targets um and those seem to have kind of stopped um, the reason for that, obviously, I'm, I don't really want to speculate on, you know, I don't know if there was like an, an agreement's been made or if the Taliban have, you know, maybe they've been successful in, in kind of rooting them out because there was definitely some large operations they did try to conduct against um, like ISIS cells, especially around Kabul. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it, it seems like again, there's been no real surprises has there since the, the Taliban takeover. I mean, you know, the reduction of of human rights, um, just you know, freedom of the press. I believe I can't remember. I forget her name now, but there was a Western journalist who. Um, I thought it was weird at the time, but I didn't really clock that it was. I didn't. I didn't really know them, so I didn't think it was you know particularly weird. But they posted a tweet that was um, something like you know I you know I it was like an apology tweet for you know lies they posted about Taliban or something along those lines, which I thought was quite unusual. Um, and then a couple of days later, they kind of followed up saying that they'd been forced to post that tweet, um, like under duress, like in prison in Kabul. Mm. Um, I think she'd been investigating again. I think like you know, um, uh, you know, like Taliban crimes against. I think it was against women. Um, but yeah, she said you know she'd been like kind of locked up and been to like write and tweet that and tweet this out and then delete it and retweet it and delete it and retweet it. You know, until they were happy with the wording, until she was finally let go and. Um, allowed to leave the country, and which is then, you know, she then, you know, revealed exactly what was going on. Um, but yeah, again, it's like I said, it's exactly what we expected, um, which is, you know, sad, but it's difficult to see, like, how, um, you know, any change or any kind of improvement can be made, especially when the Taliban are in charge. Yeah. And I think as we probably alluded to in, in, in the episode, um, the Afghan special back in season one, um, we you know, you know the, uh, the, at this point, Afghan is, to all intents and purposes, really a lost cause, probably, because mm-hmm. there is not going to be political will, certainly any time soon, for Western troops to go back into Afghanistan to, to get rid oh, of God, the no. again. Oh, God, no. ultimately that's never going to happen and unfortunately at the minute what we're seeing um, particularly in the UK is that the British government has now become so involved in obviously the crisis in Ukraine and trying to support Ukrainian refugees that to all intents and purposes Afghan refugees and those Afghans who supported British forces and, and, and allied forces in Afghanistan who unfortunately didn't make it out in the Kabul airlift seem to have more or less disappeared or or have been forgotten about um, yeah and unfortunately uh, as i think i said at the time in in that episode back in season one it all comes down to the decision that western governments made that they were no longer prepared to be in afghanistan ultimately i i do firmly believe they left afghanistan to its current fate um, Absolutely, and I don't think the history books will look particularly favourably on that decision. No, and, and so they shouldn't. You know, the, the state Afghanistan's in now is one hundred percent, maybe not one hundred percent, but I think ninety percent the fault or the decisions that were made in. To be honest, like the last weeks and months prior to that kind of shambles of a, an evacuation, hmm. if, if lead started, if if those decisions have been made six months to a year earlier um i i don't think we'll be um in a situation we're in now mm-hmm. if the afghan government were our oh, military i mean obviously i know there's a lot of money spent on in training and supplying the afghan military um but when you look compare it to like the the support and equipment that ukraine have been given um it's difficult to you know 
would it have made a difference? It's unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it, it seems you know there was there's obviously a you know uh, a kind of an internal civil war um, is very much different than uh, you know equipping a country to fight against an external aggressor, isn't it? You know, there's it, it's not really comparable, but um, you, you know more could have been done at the end, I think, to support. Um, the Afghan government, if not just kind of hanging around for a few moments and at least trying to degrade the Taliban to a point where they were no longer a threat to Kabul, at least for the time being, um, literally, you know, literally legging it as they were, you know, taken region by region um, without a shot fired in some cases. Mm. Um, yeah, definitely didn't look good. And like I said, definitely I don't think will be looked upon fondly in the history books. And with that note, I think we will call it a day with this episode. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Um, This has been the OSINT Bunker Podcast, Season 4, Episode 5. We'll be back uh, in about two weeks' time uh, with another episode and another guest. Thank you very much for listening. 